0: Welcome back to Electric Theory, where every spark of an idea has the potential to ignite profound change. This is your host, Joshua Hunt. In this electrifying space, we passionately believe that by igniting diversity in thought, we not only fuel innovation and resilience but also play a crucial role in enhancing the well-being of people around us. We champion the idea that every individual has the boundless potential waiting to be unleashed. And we're all about fostering a culture where lifelong learning sustainable growth, and the thirst for knowledge are deeply ingrained. Today, we're taking a slight detour from our usual format. Instead of our regular discussions, you're in for a treat. We're plugging into a special segment from Culture Conversations by Bolt, a game-changing HR tech startup. Amanda, our host for this segment, whose background is in well-being, accounting, and private equity, will dive deep into into gaining insights straight from the epicenter of today's organizational leadership and exploring the nuances of what shapes and drives company culture, especially in an area that's evolving faster than ever. And our special guest for this electrifying conversation, a true visionary in the realms of hospitality and real estate, with over two decades of unparalleled expertise, we proudly present Kevin Lillis, the poised CEO of Hospitality Alliance, a titan in his field. Kevin's insights promise to be both enlightening and captivating. From pioneering safer MMA fighting spaces through an empathy-driven approach to overseeing the massive repositioning of Jersey City's waterfront. Kevin's innovative spirit knows no bounds. Having also launched the acclaimed Beyond Food campaign for MasterCard and managing award-winning colossal food halls, Kevin's expertise in crafting magnetic brand cultures is unparalleled. Today, we're privileged to journey into the mind of Kevin and unravel the secrets of building a brand that's powerful in numbers as it is in culture. So brace yourself and let's plug in this electrifying journey. We have
1: 24 hours a day. Organize your day, you work hard. I'm here to talk about success.
2: When you're a young fighter, the way you get paid is by selling tickets. Mm -hmm. So if you're like a great young fighter from Brooklyn, you're going to be fighting for 500 to show, 500 to win, but you're really going to get paid on your commission on selling tickets. You're a young fighter from Brooklyn. You're going to sell 300 tickets and you're going to walk out of there with another three grand. That's what you're really going to make money on, but it was illegal for them. They would have to go to South Jersey Atlantic to pick from fighting illegally, which basically it's like Fight Club. Or doing that. And when they were doing that, I remember the second show I did Kenny Florian, who was a big UFC fighter, his younger brother Keith was supposed to fight for me. And his opponent went in for blood work and was HIV positive. So it was like these guys were fighting no blood work, no ambulances, no ring doctors. They would get hurt and they'd just be like, get the guy a cab and drop him off at the hospital and say you got jumped. And it was like that wasn't fair to the fighters. So I was like, I don't care what this is. I'm doing it. But I was able to do it because I was running the Plaza Hotel. So to me, I'm like, if I get a two-year suspension on my promoter's license, I don't care. I'm an ex-athlete. These guys can't keep fighting and risking getting HIV or hepatitis Mm -hmm. because of this loophole. So I did it, and I did it at Terminal 5 under a big disco ball. So I did it, and I did it loud, and it was, like, all in the press, like, this is on thin ice, and none of my friends showed up, because they're like, he's getting arrested, they're like, there's not going to be a fight, because I wasn't quiet about it, but it was funny, like, we, we, got, we got lucky that there was a bunch of, like, first-round knockouts, and I think there were 10 fights that night, and Marabba Dvalishvili fought that night in the main event, and he now just beat Jose Aldo in the UFC. But he started fighting for us. So he's now one of the top two or three guys in the UFC at 145. But so he was the last guy. And as like the second to last fight was going on, I'm like taking bottles off the shelf. And I'm like folding up chairs. I'm like, haven't gotten arrested yet. <laughs> so like, we'll celebrate when we get to the bar. I'm like, a paddy wagon might roll in here in any minute. And just start like tossing us zip cuffs. So we were like, yeah, we'll celebrate when we get to the bar. Now we actually did it. But it was something that I was like that night was over so quick that I still don't know if I would have gotten arrested. But it was certainly one that like my wife doesn't realize the risk we took that night. But hey, she trusted you. Yeah, I'm. There's if there's a bit of a pattern in my career, I'm like, yeah, let's go.
1: All right. Today, our special guest is Kevin Lillis. He is the CEO at Hospitality Alliance. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. You
1: are welcome. So as a leader in the hospitality industry, how have you been able to cultivate an authentic sense of belonging and connection in your teams and with the projects that you've been working on?
2: It's really about the culture of your team. It's really about instilling values. And I I think I'm a, a big believer in growth mindset. So I think a big part of our approach is understanding that I'm always in a position of growth and my team's always in a position of growth and encouraging them to continue growing and to continue to put a path in front of them. I find a lot of the teams a lot more motivated by seeing the path towards what they want to get in their career where they want to develop to, incorporating them in that and making their development a very deliberate thing and a very staged thing. And then the success is not an accident. It's something that they're seeing. If I'm in a, an assistant general manager and I want to become a general manager in two years, that what's the on-ramp to that? What is the process? What are the things you need to do? So I think that's a big part of creating that culture and creating something where None of the members of our team ever feel like they're at risk of hitting a ceiling where their talents are going to outpace the position that we, we have available for them.
1: And how do you create like action plans that help those people see that clear step forward and that path forward to where they want to be?
2: we involve them early in the projects that are coming forward invite them into the construction process into the design process into all those architecture meetings the hard hat tours so cuz a lot of people in food and beverage being on the on the operations side they really coming on come on to most projects once it's you know 6 weeks out from opening so I like to be a lot more deliberate with it. And two years out from openings, I joined the architecture meetings, joined, understand how I'm structuring this deal. Three years ago, as COVID really slowed things down, I started being very deliberate about it in creating our own internal development program, where we did three hours of teaching every Tuesday and Wednesday night. We would do 30 minutes of a different varietal of wine, and then we'd do two and a half hours of food and beverage economics, or on architecture, or on nightlife or on bars or setting a menu or or any of these kinds of things where we created this 16-week program that anyone can join within our company. Because again, it it was something that if we want someone to get to the next step, are we going to wait for it to happen accidentally? or Are we going to be proactive and kind of foster this along?
1: So that kind of engagement that you are trying to develop early on, how have you seen that then play out? on the success and the retention of your teams once the the grand opening did happen and the restaurant or the bar whatever project it was was opened
2: i found it to be much more successful than just something of really separating i think it, i think it's kind of like thinking about what the employee needs as opposed to what the company needs and and really thinking of them and much more of a, of a tied thing I mean in a, in a way that it's kind of like I work for my team as opposed to my team working for me where it's if someone's a great team member I don't want to lose them because they're pregnant one of our strongest team members and now has a one-year-old and she's been in the really on the bar side of things for the last 12 years I'm not going to lose her just because now that she has a one-year-old she's not going to be able to be so much on the bar side of things. So we started deliberately training her towards more of a daytime role, more of an office role. So it's something that when people are part of your team and they're valued, it's really being, trying to be ahead of it as much as you can. And I think a big thing with us is we don't, we don't covet knowledge. I don't feel like the things I've learned or that our senior team have learned are really ours to, you know, to hold It's Mm -hmm. something like we're not a need-to-know company. If I learned it and we're in the business of taking care of people, I've always said to to our team members, if I taught them something and they opened up their own competitive restaurant of mine and paid their their kids' way through school and fed their families and achieved their dreams, that I would be the happiest person for them at the opening party and be proud that I could help them do this and help them take care of their community and help them help their team pay their bills. Mm -hmm. So for me, I don't feel... (laughs) To to us in the hospitality business, it's kind of like the revenue, the being financially successful, it's kind of a a perversion of what we're attempting to do. We're serving the community. I'm serving my team. And by having a team that is motivated and authentic in what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve, guests are going to reward you with loyalty. Mm -hmm. But it's not the other way around. If you're just doing something to make money, not because the community needs it or because you're putting a team member in a position where they're happy and they're doing what they like to do, you're not going to reach that financial success.
1: So how important then is it being in the people's people's business to be taking care of and making sure that your employees are well taken care of and engaged and feel like they they feel like they're a big part of the teams and they can go take care of the other people in the hospitality space.
2: It's everything. It's everything. It's I would be foolish if I thought that I could majorly impact the culture myself. It's It has to be structured in a way. It has to be in a way where they're financially aligned with us. They are participating in every way the way I am. And it has to be started from the system. It can't be do as I say, not as I do. It can't be you know, the business is is very successful. They don't participate in that. But I really want them to learn these lessons that are good for the company, but don't necessarily have any impact on them. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So it's something that you really need to create alignment and maintain that alignment.
1: Have you been able to utilize or take advantage of any sort of technology to create better alignment and continue down that path?
2: Sure, uh, we, we we track our guests. Um, the point-of-sale software in the food and beverage business has gotten massively improved Mm -hmm. over the last 20 years where we can see see what different servers are doing. So in the way that you can tell that one server is really comfortable with tequila. And when they're going to a table, they're consistently selling those palomas and margaritas because that's what they're comfortable talking about. And you're like, you notice they're not really selling a lot of wine. And you recognize that's a, you know, 25 year old server that's often has a table full of guests that are older than her and no wine better than her. She's not comfortable talking about it. But it's something that that's just an example where in technology we can see it and say, maybe we should teach her some more about this. So she is more comfortable when she goes to that table. But it gives us a better window as to, you know, what's going on with server 23. Oh, understood. Maybe they need some help here. Maybe they could upsell there. Maybe they could get more tips by doing this but it's something that it's just kind of continuing to communicate and, and foster their growth.
1: And that falls kind of into services of consulting that hospitality, hospitality Alliance offers. Mm -hmm. What have you been seeing as like the biggest challenge the hospitality industry is facing as a whole right now?
2: As a whole, I would say that we're big study, you know, I'm, I'm a big student of data. And what we really have seen in the last, I'd say, 125 years is that up until pre-COVID, average life expectancy was going up every year outside of world wars. And then it started to dip before COVID, and it started to dip because of suicide and overdose. Advancements in in medical science were starting to get outweighed by that. So I think already we were starting to get into a point of isolation as, as a society. Of people with a lot of contacts, but a lot less intimacy a lot less close friendships. With LinkedIn, I probably have 5,000 contacts, but how many people are really close? And that was certainly something of, of the direction that our society was going. But now with COVID, it magnified that so much more. So it's something that our industry, um, construction cost is extreme right now. Some of the cost of goods are, are really high. So it's something that it's, it was already a tight margin business and it's that gotten that much harder just at a time that I feel like society needs that third space, that gathering space, that, that space to make new memories together more than ever. So I think as a result of that, the industry is going to find its way. But it's something that an industry where pre-COVID... 10 12% margins you were doing pretty well now it's probably half of that because of those supply chain issues because of and well, now with what's gone on with construction costs kind of it's a pretty tough financial situation for restaurants but again I think society needs restaurants too much so it will find its way
1: Mhm given the tight margins are there areas that other people in this space may not see, but that you see, oh, you can cut your costs here. Or you can cut your costs here that are outside of what we were just talking about with For sure. food and construction. because you can't really control those so much right now.
2: For sure. Um, it's something that you, the bigger you get, the, the better the rate's going to be on all of your cost of goods. You have more shared infrastructure from your senior team. That certainly helps. Um, you get to really expand across your guests in the sense that you, know, you be- can become more of a one-stop shop where you can help them kind of figure out their whole night. So those are all upside, but it's, it still is something that our industry hasn't really recovered from COVID from a cost standpoint. And now I feel like with some of the pre-recession concern, that uh, revenue is a bit off this year kind uh, nationally across the board 10-15%. What so. ad,
1: what advice would you give to a struggling hospitality group that is like oh we can't control our revenue too much right now cuz it is what it's going to be with given the macroeconomic state of this country where can we though cut our costs?
2: Where can we cut our costs? That's a tough one. It's something that some of the approach some have is having less of a personable interaction and service experience. And it's something you can do, but some, it's something that to me, it's kind of short-lived because kind of like the ghost kitchen side of things. And that's kind of the direction that a lot of people are going. But I think it that doesn't solve that need for hospitality and human interaction. And it's something that candidly, your service people are primarily tipped anyway. So they don't have that much of an impact on the PL. Mm-hmm. Your kitchen staff has a, has a bigger impact. Your management team has a bigger impact. And your cost of goods. It's something that chicken and eggs were both spiking last year. We, we couldn't get eggs in grocery stores. And now eggs are very cheap again. So at least that's helped, <laughs> I'd say. Start selling more chicken and egg sandwiches.
1: <laughs> oh, Good. yeah
2: beef's expensive right now chicken chicken's cheap right now
1: (laughs) oh my goodness I love it okay awesome so as the founder of the coalition against uh, domestic violence how have you been able to act as a liaison between the community the hospitality industry and what exactly is your role
2: we founded this during COVID. We were f- feeding kids at a Cook's Children's Hospital, and we found that there was more child abuse deaths in a month than there usually are in a year. So that was kind of the start of it. And then I had several servers of ours that I feared were in abusive relationships. And <clears throat> one of them was attempting to leave, to leave her partner, but he had been the only one in the lease for the last five years. So it was something that... I didn't want to be just the 50th person to say, you should just leave him. It's not so simple. And if you have children, but it's even more the financial ties. She had never been on a lease before. He controlled the bank account. The level of control did not stop at, at the physical aspect. So it was something that the abuse went that much further. We tried to actively get her an apartment so that she could get safe. But that was something that at a time during COVID, we've, already been, we've always been very philanthropy-driven. My my partner and we started the company. But in COVID, as margins got really tight, it was hard to do that. And it was something that, it really was giving me trouble sleeping. Mm -hmm. It was something that I just kept racking my head about it. I'm just like, this is such a huge problem. And it's like best kept awful secret in the country. It's this thing that affects one in four women in, in the country and one in three in Texas. And it's something that, you're sitting there in the dining room, three women probably are in an abusive relationship right now in that restaurant. And it's something that if they knew they weren't alone, they wouldn't feel like it was their fault. If they knew they weren't alone, maybe they could feel they could talk about it. So it's something that during COVID, when we were in this financially strapped position, I... I one day kind of realized, we don't have the capital to do the donations to handle this. And I'd realized in talking to my staff, I'm ill-equipped to be someone to counsel a woman going through this. Whereas the people we were working with with Genesis Women's Shelter were incredibly talented and and trained in in handling this, recognizing kind of the limits of what we could do, Mm -hmm. but the uh, potential of what we could, which was, we have a lot of restaurant relationships and we can print stickers for free and I'll create your training manual for free and we'll create a system. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And then it, it spread across about 40 restaurants in Dallas and it spread into Minneapolis and Las Vegas and New York. But it was something that our thinking was, if a woman sees this once, she might still feel like it's just a, an off thing. It, but if she sees it three or four times, recognizing this isn't just a, a her mm-hmm. thing. And, and it's something that we kind of feel like we have an opportunity, but also an obligation as that third space. If she's in an abusive relationship, particularly if she's working from home, where's she going to look at this stuff? She's not going to look at it on her work computer. She's not going to feel safe looking this up at home. This is the only opportunity for her to encounter this information. So it's something that we started it, and candidly, I've been with my wife for 18 years, so I was pretty ashamed of how significant the problem was going on right under my nose with me not Mm -hmm. recognizing it. And I have a six-year-old girl, so that was certainly a a part of it as well. But it was something that as soon as we did the program, we had an an incident. And I think a lot of it, again, I'm not active in the dating world, but I think people might have been creepy with online dating pre-COVID, but they certainly got creepier post-COVID. Some of those What's socially acceptable and not, I think, had an even stronger decline. Mental health had a stronger decline. So coming out of COVID, people were acting horribly inappropriate. So it was something that we wanted to say to our staff and to our guests that, our, that this is a safe space. And it was something that we also felt was an opportunity at just at Discovery District. We have about 200 employees. So if we train all of our people in that, even if you're only with our team for six months now you know this, and you might see it in your sister. You might see it in your cousin. You might see it in your friend as you might not otherwise see it. So it's something of, again, taking responsibility. That's what we could do in the community.
1: That's awesome. So you've created this training into pretty much any restaurant that you work with now? or
2: So it's in all of our restaurants, yeah. but it's something that I wanted to make sure that we do it for free. Yeah. So we've had ones contact us. That's how we ended up in Minneapolis. Yeah. And they're like, what's the cost for this? I'm like, the cost is nothing. nothing. I'm like, for me, it's, this is not for me to own. Yeah. If someone, so I wanted to put it online even, but the, the part about it that was unique is I wanted it and, and knew it had to be unique to each restaurant. Mm-hmm. I think like years ago, Hooters did it with the angel shot, but it's really not realistic. If a woman is there with a guy that she's really intimidated by, is she going to say this phrase that is so well-known? What if the bartender doesn't respond? What if he knows and the bartender doesn't? Mm-hmm. Every one of the restaurants has a different thing. Yeah. Is it a drink that's not on the menu? Is it asking if a pitcher that played last night played? Is it asking the score of a game? Every location is different. Mm. And to us, that was kind of a key of it. It's something where we get them safe and get them out, but also can connect them with a shelter.
1: Yeah, and it shows how much... You value safety too, which I think is core and paramount to the foundation of any sort of team or any sort of environment. And especially given that you work with so many different restaurants, like that's paramount to being able to continue to function.
2: If someone's unsafe, any of the positive things we're trying to do are completely lost we have a great drink. You feel unsafe. You don't care about my that great drink. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel safe, there is nothing else. Mm-hmm. It is the hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're like, mm-hmm. you are not getting to, that's a tasty meal if you are unsafe. Mm-hmm. You can't move on to three or four if you have not addressed one or two. And mm-hmm. being that most restaurateurs are are male, it's like, you're neglecting female guests if you're thinking you can just move on from that. Just because you feel safe doesn't mean that she feels safe. Mm-hmm. You need to make sure you've addressed this. Mm-hmm. But it, it was something that, again, I'm very happy of what we've been able to do, but it's something that I'm also very ashamed of how unaware I was to it for the length of time Yeah. that it was.
1: Thanks for taking action now that you do have that awareness. Thank you. Do you believe that a growth mindset is something that can be learned or do you think it's innate and you're either born with a growth mindset or a fixed mindset?
2: No, I think it's something that's learned. I really think it is. I would say it's something that I've been very conscious about developing and fostering, not only myself and but my team. And it's something that occasionally some of my, I have some very talented team members who um, consistently execute on a certain level and they feel they're fixed when I see much greater potential Mm -hmm. in them and I'm pushing them. So sometimes it's sometimes am I fixed about them or are they fixed about themselves? But I think all of that starts where you have to show your own vulnerability and your own growth path. If you want to have that kind of culture I used to be a a youth group leader, and it was something that if you want to impact a child, you can't do it until that kid knows you love them. You can't come from a position of you should just be this without first having this connection and understanding what their path is and what their goals are. It's the same thing with that growth mindset of, I think you can do something more. I think, and the way I would start that is by join architecture meetings. No, you're not going to participate in this, but you're going to see what these next stages are of the yeah. process. You might've only been doing these, but you do it so well that you actually have more aptitude than you're giving yourself credit for. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that is really embracing it and showing it in yourself. And that's tough sometimes as a leader, because there, there is a balance of wanting the team to have confidence that, especially in difficult times, like we've had for the last few years, that there's a level of security of having strong leadership with also embracing that I'm far from done with my journey and I'm, I hope I never am.
1: Yeah, breaking down those boundaries, those layers, being transparent and vulnerable so that you can build a trusted team that's able to
2: succeed. Exactly right. Studying demographics and studying kind of what's going on, I think as we create where we're trying to go with a company and what we're trying to do, it a big part of it is digging and trying to understand the Underlying truths and trying to cut through what's a symptom and what's a cause. And that's where we start with the demographic understanding. And then a lot of it is understanding where we're going as a society and where we're going kind of as a culture in the sense that a lot of these primary cities, with the exception of Dallas, are shrinking. And then there's kind of a migration towards these secondary cities. And what that's going to mean for us as a society, because I think people don't want to move rural. They still want the amenities of an urban environment, but they don't want to be in the kind of cost of living and quality of schools in New York City, in Chicago, in LA, in San Francisco. And that's what we're seeing, like Cedar Rapids, Boise, Raleigh, Waco, San Antonio, Tulsa, These markets are really growing, Knoxville, because you can have those urban amenities without having to have a wild cost of living or doing business. And and particularly for the young people, for people that, that are more comfortable being virtual or for the creative industries, it's something that if you don't have to be in New York City or Chicago or San Fran, why are you? And that's as someone who's born and raised in New York City and loves it, and still very sentimental about it. But it's still something from just like a pure kind of value perspective. You're like, all right, schools are pretty lousy. My cost of living is very high, and how much is that going to limit my growth as a company? And I think the other thing that that I have a big focus on, which is more recent, is growth mindset and recognizing that a big part of The way I try to lead the company is I try to lead the company from the front lines, not from the tower, not from the top of the mountain. This is not, I am not done with my growth. I've had that when I started doing those training courses with my team, some of the senior people had a a perspective of, "I I don't need to go to that. I'm already in the industry 15 years and it's something like I'm in the industry 27 years and I'm not done. I hope I'm never done. So part of that is recognizing I'm not done with my journey. Particularly in COVID, it's like, it certainly has changed me. It's forced me to adapt and learn new things. But I think that is not only embracing that I'm not done changing, but also then reflecting that I can't look at any of the team members as also being fixed. If someone is incapable of doing something today, it doesn't mean that they're always going to be incapable of doing this. And there's a certain level that you have to have a fixed mindset and recognize what is but certainly can't close off what can be and limit possibilities because you're just looking at things as fixed.
1: (laughs) Define culture in one word. Alignment. I love it. Alignment. All right. So the last guest left you a question. It is the white piece of paper.
2: All right. Do, do they know who I was or no?
1: No, they do not. I'll
2: read the uh, question. How has a challenge in your personal life influenced your ability to solve a professional challenge? I would say my, my brother is in federal law enforcement. And in 2008, he went down in the line of duty. Um. Now, maybe this isn't a good one <laughs> but he was he was in a coma, and he had to learn to walk again and talk again, and fought his way all the way back mm-hmm. into the office and the position and now has continued and continued to get promoted within that but that was that's my only sibling, and it was certainly something that I think made me a more vulnerable leader, made me a more And I think recognizing that vulnerability is power. Being shut off and locking it down, frankly, I think is less confident and weaker. But it was something that seeing my brother push through that and endure that and come back from that was something that kind of forced me to recognize that struggle was inevitable. Factors outside of your control are inevitable. And it's really about how you handle them and mm-hmm. how you come back from them and what you do next with the challenges, the external challenges that, are, that you're going to be faced with.
1: Mm-hmm. Control what you can.
2: And release on what you can't yep. and be at peace at what you can't. That's, a, I think, a big thing for leadership and that a lot of leaders are naturally control freaks, mm-hmm. but you want to control as much of the variables as you can. But there's still always going to be things outside of that. And you come into each situation with a plan, but particularly as we've seen with the last three years, all that can change. And you shouldn't, mourning the loss of the plan should not prevent you from seeing what the new opportunity is in the field today. And I think that's something that I think it's natural for leaders of, I was going to do this and this, but what now? You were... Dead set, you're the quarterback, and you were going to throw the ball to that guy, and now he's double covered. That means someone else is open. So don't miss that open mm-hmm. pass because you're so fixated on the loss of that thing. That ball was absolutely going there. Now it's not. So what is a leader are you going to do about it?
1: Mm-hmm. Pivot.
2: Have to pivot every day. You're going to do the best you're going to do today based on what the options are in front of you. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Thank you. It was another good day. We had another good day. And if you line up enough good days, fuck around, have a good life.